Now, if you would and you can, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Exodus chapter 33, verse, uh, the whole chapter plus 34 through for 34, verse 9. <clears throat> and I am reading from the God's word translation, a Bible in which I had the privilege to design. Then the Lord said to Moses, you and the people who brought you brought out of Egypt must leave this place. Go to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with an oath, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send a messenger ahead of you, and I will force out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go to that land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not be with you because you are impossible to deal with, and I would destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they acted as if someone had died. No one wore any jewelry. The Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are impossible to deal with. If I were with you, I might destroy you at any time. Now take off your jewelry, and I'll decide what to do with you. After they left Mount Horeb, the Israelites no longer wore their jewelry. Now Moses used to take a tent and set it far outside the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who was seeking the Lord's will used to go outside the camp to the tent of meeting. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people would rise and stand at the entrance to their tents and watch Moses until he went in. As soon as Moses went into the tent, the column of smoke would come down and stay at the entrance to the tent while the Lord spoke with Moses. When all the people saw the column of smoke standing at the entrance to the tent, they would all bow with their faces touching the ground at the entrance to their own tents. The Lord would speak personally with Moses as a man speaks to his best friend. Then Moses would come back to the tent, but his assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, stayed inside the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me to lead these people, but you haven't let me know whom you're sending with me. You've also said, I know you by name, and I'm pleased with you. If you really are pleased with me, show me your ways so that I can know you, and so that you will continue to be pleased with me. Remember, this nation is your people. The Lord answered, My presence will go with you, and I will give you peace. Then Moses said to him, If your presence is not going with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone ever know your pleas with your people and me unless you go with us? Then we will be different from all other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do what you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Please let me see your glory. The Lord said, I will let all my goodness pass in front of you, and there I will call out my name, the Lord. I will be kind to anyone I want to. I will be merciful to anyone I want to. But you can't see my face, because no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, Look, there's a place near me. Stand by this rocky cliff. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the cliff and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you'll see my back but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two more stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet which you smashed. 
Be ready in the morning. Then come up on Mount Sinai and stand in my presence on the top of the mountain. No one may come with you or even be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds may not graze in front of this mountain. So Moses cut two more stone tablets like the first ones. Early the next morning, he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him, carrying the two stone tablets. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and called out his name, the Lord. Then he passed in front of Moses, calling out, The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and merciful God, patient, always faithful, and ready to forgive. He continues to show his love to thousands of generations, forgiving wrongdoing, disobedience, and sin. He never lets the guilty go unpunished, punishing children and grandchildren for their parents' sins to the third and fourth generation. Immediately, Moses knelt, bowing with his face, touching the ground. Then he said, Lord, please go with us, even though we are impossible to deal with. Forgive our sin and the wrong we have done, and accept us as your own people. You may be seated. Vance, thank you so much. You and Linda are so very dear to us and wonderful to hear the work that God has done in your life. And we thank you for your model of, of uh, loving the church family so well. I want us to begin today on a rather sobering reflection, that is on this idea of betrayal. Remember a time in your life where you felt betrayed? A terrible feeling, isn't it? So we reserve the word betrayal for what happens uh, in intimate relationships uh, when they go wrong. Really what betrayal is, is when we open ourselves up and we become vulnerable, and then the very person to whom we've made ourselves vulnerable then uses that position with us to, to turn on us. That those who know us best are those who can hurt us the most. Say betrayal. One of the worst things we can feel. I was reminded this week, in fact, I was down at Verdi's Opry, Opera Othello, uh, named after Shakespeare's play. And uh, the villain in that play, Iago, one of the, the worst villains in all literature, you know, say, why does he get that enviable distinction? Because he's a great betrayer. Say betrayal is a terrible thing. And where we find ourselves in Exodus, as we're going to try to land this plane in the next few weeks, is on the heels of a great betrayal, perhaps the greatest in all holy writ. You remember what happened in chapter 32, that the Israelites, after Moses was up on the mountain, he tarried for 40 days, getting the law and the tabernacle dimensions, that they fashioned for themselves a golden calf. Think, how could they? So we read along, how could they do that? The same people that saw God's miracles, that, that God did such a great work in them to bring them out of slavery, to liberate them, and within such a short time, this impetuous and sinful people craft an idol. And you remember what happens then, don't you, right? That Moses smashes those tablets, not so much in a fit of anger as much to show the relationship is deeply damaged. In acts of betrayal in any relationship, there's one question left hanging, and I think it comes in our passage in 33, uh, the beginning of chapter 33, where God basically says, let me figure out what I'm going to do. That when there's a betrayal, the question is, is the relationship going to last? Is it going to make it? You know, maybe the clearest analogy we have is 
in a marriage covenant that that runs right through the Bible, doesn't it? God's relationship with his people uh, is analogous to a human marriage. And when there's betrayal in a marriage, the question is, is there any chance for the marriage? And many times we know the answer to that, it's no. And so we're left after chapter 32, as Caleb so wonderfully outlined last week, this great act of or this terrible act of crafting the golden calf, is the covenant going to make it? Are God's people going to push through? What would you do if you were God? Say, you might just zap the people, wouldn't you? Say, I'm done with this. I mean, how thick are they? It's over. But as we know, that's not what God does that the story's going to continue. And so as we land uh, Exodus, we'll look at really ending on this note of glory and grace. And the way that I've uh, set this up today, and I hope the title, it's a dangerous title because I don't want to mislead with it, but I've titled the message, The Divine Dilemma. And what I mean by this, of course, is, is not that God was in a difficult spot backed into a corner, which is how we normally use the word dilemma, that God says, oh, now, now what am I going to do? But rather a divine dilemma, I borrow this title from the early church fathers, it's a way of um, expressing more of a riddle to us, a riddle on the human side, how God reveals himself. Maybe I can explain it this way, that God promised from the beginning after human rebellion to gather a people to himself that this was a promise given to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. God's going to say, I'm going to buy back a people to myself. And the way that I relate to this people, uh, the love between us and how the people flourish under my kingship is going to draw in all nations so that all people, all of God's creation can flourish under uh, the true king. That was the, the game plan of redemption. It's a whole story of the Bible. God redeeming a people for himself. And when God promises this, it's unconditional. It's often phrased in such a way, God's going to do this. His plan can't be thwarted. So if you have a look, even in Exodus, it's repeated. So Exodus chapter 3 and verse 17, you can just have a listen, what God tells Moses. I promise I will bring you up out of the land of affliction of Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's just one expression of many in the Bible of an unconditional promise of God. I'm going to redeem a people, and I'm going to establish you in the land. It's not conditional on your behavior. That's the way it's going to go. So there's God's promise. But then the other side of the divine dilemma is the disobedience and rebellion and sinfulness of his people. Say, so have a read once again. If you have a physical Bible, remember the Ten Commandments. Say, so how clear could God be? You remember the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and I'm a jealous God. Or again, Exodus 20 and verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. So God couldn't be more clear. Don't worship false things. And what do the people say? Chapter 24 and verse three, remember? All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. How about Exodus 24 and verse 7? They double down. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. If you were God, what would you do? I've made a promise. I want to redeem a people. I've done 
through great powers and wonders, brought them out of Egypt and redeemed them and established them and promised my special presence among them in the tabernacles. Hey, it's all right there. God couldn't be more clear. Then he lays out the law, right? Not to be legalistic, but to say these are how you'll be shaped into a flourishing people. The people of Israel agree wholeheartedly. They say we'll obey and then commit the great act of betrayal. How's God gonna respond? What would you do? And I think this is best phrased in some of the most famous verses of the Bible that we read. Have a look again at 34, 6, and 7. This is a bit of contained in a short couple of lines. So much truth about the world, about God, and about us. Listen again, 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Can you see the riddle in those famous verses? The riddle is on the one hand, we say God is forgiving. He wipes out our iniquity. And on the other hand, we're told that God will judge the guilty. How can those two things actually coexist? And more important, I think, this is where you know, God's just telling us obviously by how often this comes up, these two verses are the most often quoted verses in the Hebrew Bible. You can think of it as kind of John 3.16 of the Hebrew Bible. So often, uh, are, not only is this quoted Uh, word for word, but also hundreds of allusions, really, to God being a God of steadfast love. We read one of them in the communal reading. Did you hear Psalm 103? Sounds a lot like Exodus 34 and verse 6, doesn't it? So God's saying these verses are how I'm going to reveal myself. Luther the Reformer called this, these two verses, a sermon on God's name. So in these verses, we'll look at two aspects of God's character in terms of this divine dilemma. How's God going to respond to human rebellion? And then we'll look at a resolution. How's the divine dilemma resolved? So first, let's focus really on verse 7. This idea of God being the just judge. First point we want to see in the aftermath of this betrayal is that God's going to deal with human rebellion. It's a tough truth for us, isn't it? See, a lot of us don't like to think of God this way. We've been so... Our culture so uh, down on any kind of accountability and certainly accountability in the cosmic realm. And a lot of times people say, well, why can't God just forgive by fiat and just say, you know, it's not a big deal. Let's just all move on and hug each other. And the things that I say, I don't really mean. And there's no such thing as sin. We'll just uh, get past it. You say, that is not the God of the Bible, is it? Say, God's got to deal with this betrayal that he's laid out as clearly as he could the parameters of his covenant and the way in which we honor him and the way in which we flourish. And we too often, as much as we wouldn't you know, think of the Israelites here as being incredibly obtuse, we actually have a lot in common with them. We marvel at God's creation, the gift of life, the biology of the human body, the gift of the church family, and so often these obvious signs to us we take for granted and we turn to the idols of money, of notoriety, of lust. Say, maybe I'm more like these Israelites than I realize. And you see the way God responds. It's quite scary, isn't it? He says, 
this stiff-necked people, or as uh, Vance's God's Word translation had it, this is an impossible people. The image there is like an animal that won't obey its master. You're trying to tell the animal the right direction to go, and it's a stiff-necked people. It just won't come under the yoke of the master, and God's going to consume them. That his wrath is burning. He said, do you think that's... I, quite frankly, I find that a very reasonable response from God because he's been so clear. And the people, I should say, they respond, 33-4, appropriately, that they hear this. You see, in my version, it's a disastrous word to them. And they mourn as if somebody's died. That it's a terrible thought to be under the just judgment of God. To say, I know that I've done things in my life that have not honored God. I want to keep all those things from you, but I know they're there. And there's a God out there who's perfect and I can't hide any of this from him. And quite frankly, it's quite a scary thought to be under the just judgment of God. And that's where the Israelites are, say, we're caught dead, right? There's no case to be made. There's no defense attorney that can get them out of this. It's all laid out. And they blatantly violated the terms. And they stand guilty. And you notice a sad thing. We might look over. There's a very sad ritual here in these verses about them taking off their jewelry and their ornaments. Did you catch that? Say, why did the Israelites, after this betrayal, cast off their jewelry? Do you remember where that jewelry's from? That when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, liberated them miraculously from slavery and established them as his people, that they plundered the Egyptians, they were able to take the gold and their jewelry. So each time and the subsequent time, you can imagine the Israelites putting on their most prized possessions, their jewelry and their ornaments. And each time they would put on those ornaments, they should have been reminded, oh yes, I have a good God. We are those who are subject to a good God who's rescued us. That's who we are. We're God's people. And in the wake of this betrayal, what does God say? You take that jewelry off. You've broken the terms. So we have a very, again, clear picture of that in our marriage ceremonies, don't we, that we still wear rings? It'd be F to say, the faithful partner saying to the unfaithful partner, you take that ring off, because that means nothing to you, and this relationship's over. It's a devastating thing to cast off the ornaments. And if we press this a bit further, friends, look again, 34 and verse 7, what do you think it means that God will by no means clear the guilty? You say, what do you think about that? See, I think we should be well aware that there is a moral economy in the universe. There was a time where what I just said would not have been surprising to anyone, but now that comes as a great bombshell on the playground of our culture, right? That there really is right and wrong, there really is good and evil, that there really is a just judge, these things aren't socially constructed, and right and wrong isn't determined by passing the right laws or setting up the right educational system, you know, having the right kind of vouchers and busing people. Anything on that level is where we want to go. That's not what God says, that there's real guilt that misaligned worship and false gods will destroy us and destroy other people. You think of the, what we prayed for the last couple weeks. Are the problems in our culture cosmetic, that is superficial, or are they deep-seated and spiritual? And you look out at the landscape and we're saying, God... Will there be a just judge? 
Will, will, will there be a God who's gonna set all this right? You and I, we watched what happened in Buffalo. The hatreds, the harboring of such malice, the efforts by which the young man went to do such damage. Will there be a reckoning? How about in Uvalda, Texas? I gotta tell you, that one rattled me. I'm just about the age where I remember Columbine 23 years ago when I was in middle school. I'd say that was kind of the first one. I'd say now, this happens often. I was with a man yesterday at a memorial service, a man who I'd say of a rather stern constitution, a man of mental fortitude, old friend of mine, about 65. And he was rattled. And I said, what's wrong? He said, I just can't get those events in Texas out of my mind. What are we coming to? think there's a real right and a real wrong and fighting God and cursing God and saying we won't come under God? That's the real problem. That it's not educational or political, but a spiritual darkness. And God right here says, you know what? There's a right and a wrong. And there are correct allegiances for people to flourish and there are false allegiances that will destroy us. And I, by no means, will allow the guilty to go unpunished. And you say, well, there's some of this that is a welcome. Uh, say there will be accountability for all the heinous things in the world. But then one more about the scary part. Where, where, where am I, what am I expected to obey? I mean, is the problem just Buffalo and Uvalde? Or is the problem even extend down into my own heart? that do I dare go in this culture to the place to say, I'm a lot like these Israelites and a lot like these others who look out for myself and do my own thing and harbor lots of hatreds. And it's my sin too. Well, I come under this just judge. And I think you know the answer to that, don't you say? It makes sense that all of us would come under the just judge. You know, the hardest thing for the preacher in 2022 is to talk about this notion of the seriousness of sin. See, a hundred years ago, you even heard, well, not, not even that long ago, Vance is a preacher back in Indiana. Say, he could feature, you know, preach fire and brimstone and hit the pulpit, and all the people would say, oh, this is serious business. Say, that's very hard to do these days. I know you'd all like to see my hair fly and me hit the pulpit and get fired up about. But I think what we really need to resort to in our own time is to, to just really think and be honest with ourselves and allow any self-deception to dissipate. To say, am I aware of a moral code in the universe? Have I been disobedient to that moral code? And if there's a just judge, with the Bible's very clear, there's a just judge. Which side of the verdict am I on? As I wind down this point, you know, Marx once said religion, he was talking about religion, really he was talking about Christianity, but what he said, a famous line, he said, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. What Marx meant by that, what's an opiate, too often in the news again, an opiate is something that numbs you out. It, it numbs you to life, makes you indifferent. So Marx, according, said, well, you know, believing in the Christian God was really just a way to get through a harsh life. How much more accurate? I think Marx is wrong. I'm much more in line with the Nobel Prize winning Polish writer, Szczeslaw Melosz. Listen to Melosz in response to Marx. The true opium for the people is the belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for all our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, that we're not going to be judged. I think Melosh is right. That the Christian God doesn't numb us out. 
But what is really numbing is the atheist who says, looks out at the world and says, there won't be any reckoning. Do as you please. God says, no, there's a moral economy. There's right worship and wrong worship. Be careful what you worship. So that's point number one, one side of the divine, divine dilemma. God will deal with human rebellion. He's gonna deal with this betrayal in Exodus 32, and he deals with our betrayal that sin is a serious matter to God and should be taken seriously by his church. Now, wonderfully, the second part. Notice 34 and verse six. There's a reason this part comes first. That while God takes sin seriously, he also deals graciously with sinners. It says something that this is the most quoted verse in the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So how does God reveal himself to us but one who is kind and gracious and forgiving and slow to anger. Some people picture God, he's up there and he's just watching you and the second you go out of bounds, I mean the second you think one thing and you go right, you know, God cannot wait to jump all over that and he just gonna let you have it. That's how a lot of people think of God. That's not who God is. He's gracious to sinners. You notice there's a little subtlety. You see, he wants us to know that he keeps steadfast love. There's really a rhetorical device. He keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations. But the iniquity, right, the punishment, he says to three or four generations. See, the the rhetoric of that, say God is merciful for thousands and thousands of generations, but his judgment is much more limited. Say God is a just judge, but he's far more gracious and loving that his kindness extends to his people, his steadfast love, his covenant love. And you see, that's exactly what's gonna win out, right? The Israelites are not wiped out. God's people are not wiped out. But God is consistent with this part of his character that he relents. Have a look at 33 and 14. What a relief this must be to Moses to be delivered to the people after they hear the disastrous word of God gonna consume them. God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. How about 34 and verse one? You ever catch what an act of grace this is? The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. It's a wonderful sign of God's grace that the unfaithful party, the wedding ring was off and mangled. The relationship was broken, and what does God do? He gets that wedding ring, makes it the same way and says, I want you to put this on. We're not done. He restores the covenant relationship. Why? Because God is merciful and kind and deals gently with us sinners. You know, it's in this vein, a lot of people mock the Puritans. And uh, the most famous Puritan sermon really is called The Bruised Reed. Have you ever heard Sibs's Bruised Reed? The Bruised Reed, he shall not smite. The truth is that all of us are bruised reeds, that we've all endured a great deal, some tough things in life, and sometimes our own sin, oftentimes our own sin put us in predicaments, and we feel that way, say we're a bruised reed, we're so fragile, we could so easily be knocked down or chopped down, and then the word of God comes in, that a bruised reed, he shall not 
cut down, a bruised reed he won't smite, but rather God is gracious and kind and will restore us as he does the disobedient Israelites. I ask you, church family, it's hard for me to tell, but you say you walk into our church, you're looking for a new church family. How should our church feel? You say, have you ever walked into a church and there's a lot of policing going on? Say, look at that guy, and that guy, he's out of bounds. I'm watching the sins, you know, I'm keeping a tabulation here, and we gotta have another ecclesiastical tribunal. Say, no, I hope our church feels far more gracious than it does that of an environment of policing. Why? Because that's how God's revealed himself, that he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, he's gracious, may we be a gracious church. You think how this might apply? Happened a few times in 12 years of ministry now in the local church, but you say you have a young girl who's growing up in the youth group, and uh, you know, she gets pregnant out of wedlock. Does she thinking? The last place I want to go is my church, because I'd be so judged I feel terrible there. So that'd be bad, wouldn't it? How much better would it be if that girl said, I need my church because I know it's a place of grace and restoration and help. You see the order there, friends. God takes sin very seriously. False worship is putting us in a lot of trouble. It's a time of great spiritual darkness. There will be a reckoning. God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Yet, God deals graciously with sinners and he's extended a path forward for all who will come to him. You know, the church, as you've heard said, it's not as if the good people are in here and the bad people are out there, but rather those of us who've been redeemed by Jesus are in here and those who are yet to be redeemed are out there. So we're all sinners at the mercy of a gracious God. So God takes sin seriously. He deals graciously with sinner. Now, how, how is the divine dilemma? How is this resolved both in Exodus 33 and in our own day? You'll notice what moves things along from this act of betrayal to God restoring the relationship with the new tablets. There's the role of the mediator. There's a mediator, and when we have a mediator, we know that that person enters when there's a dispute. And there's most certainly a dispute. There's a God-Israelite dispute. God laid out the terms. The Israelites agreed. They broke the terms. Now there's a legal dispute. And in the gap is Moses, that Moses is the mediator. Now, when he functions as the mediator, you'll notice what he's doing. There's two movements a good mediator is going to do. He's going to plead with God for God's mercy. Moses, not once, you'll see that wonderful line, he's meeting with God face to face as a person meets with a friend. Never once does Moses say, God, you know, what we did isn't that serious. Um, you know, making the golden calf, you're looking at it the wrong way, God, um, you know, you, you need to lighten up. That's not what he does. What he does is he pleads. He pleads that God would withhold his wrath God, please remember your mercy upon your people. He's appealing to the character of God that God would delay the just judgment. Please, God, give us more time. Uh, would you please avert your, your wrath? So at one point, the mediator saying, God, we, we deserve this. Please don't bring your wrath upon us now. Don't consume us. We, we want to keep going. We want the promise to be fulfilled. At the same time, that's what he's saying to God. To the people, what's he doing? He's wanting them to see how serious this is. 32 and verse 30. And now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. 
That's what Moses says. Or how about how our passage ended today? If now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff neck that is an impossible people, and pardon our iniquity. See, that's a great mediator right there. God, we need your mercy. Have mercy on your people is the plea to God and then to the people. This is serious business. We're really out of bounds here. We come back to God, confess our sins. That's how we move through the divine dilemma. Now the question for us as I, I wind down this morning, where's our Moses? You think there's a, a God-providence uh, church dispute? You say, or we got it all right during the week? Say, we behave uh, in God's law, we got it all perfectly, we do everything God would want as we're expected to do, we're good? Or would you say, you know, there's a God on high and we're down here, who's our go-between? Is there a mediator like Moses for our church? You know the answer to this, right? That we have the supreme mediator. That Moses' mediating action after this great betrayal is a great signpost. It's a great flashing sign, that is, to the real mediator, the Lord Jesus, who's the go-between between us sinners and God on high, right? He's pleading our case that we're washed in his blood, that he's our go-between. We have access to the holiness of God through the blood of Jesus, Listen to this, and I think a good summary of all we've been talking about. This is in Romans 3. Very important couple of verses. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, I guess pause there. Do you, do you believe that today? The fundamental divide in the West is not racial or political or socioeconomical. The primary divide in the West is whether we are convicted that people come into this world in rebellion against God, in a condition bent against God and against one another, we would say that we are depraved, or those who say, nope, we're doing just fine. We're quite good people. You say Romans 3 and verse 23 is the clear position of the Bible, and I pray is evident to all of us as we look upon the world in which we live. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, the grace of God as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is an atonement for our sin by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, you can think justice, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What do you think that is? So in God's kindness and his patience, he passed over the former sins of his people. It sounds to me an awful lot like Exodus 32. Why didn't God smite the people in Exodus 32? Because in his kindness, in his mercy, he waited to pour out his wrath. He delayed his just judgment. And it was to show God's justice at the present time, and the key phrase here, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Can you see how this resolves the divine dilemma? In the cross of Jesus, the people of God see both the seriousness of human iniquity and the love of God. That God poured out the just judgment that his people had deserved over the centuries onto Jesus. That he took our shame, all that we've done on the cross, 
and we look at his bloodied body up there and say, this is quite serious because that's what I deserve. God does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. But also we see that man hanging on the cross, that his blood comes to us as a gift of grace because God is slow to anger and forgiving by nature. And all who've heard about Jesus have a chance to come to him by faith, to repent of our sins, the way we've made a mess of our lives, the way that we've made a mess of things, that we can turn to Jesus. The kindness of God comes through Jesus. And we see the God of the universe both as the one who is just, but the one who graciously justifies the sinner as we come to him by faith. Can you see how Romans 3 and Exodus 34, 6 and 7 connect so very well together. God is serious about rebellion, but he loves us supremely. The justice and mercy of God meet in the cross of Christ, and we are those who come to him. Friend, you're, you're not a Christian today. Say, I know in the room this size, even this week, we're thinking back, say, wow, I've just, um, I, I'm not feeling good about the decisions that I've made. Boy, oh boy, is there a way back? Maybe you are in that, say, thinking about God and the big questions of life, and you read a passage like this, I hope you can see there's the way forward. God, I'm a sinner. I, I admit that I have not, I, in a culture that says this shouldn't be taken seriously and there's no such thing as right and wrong, I feel really lousy, and quite frankly, I'm more persuaded by this. What do I do? Well, we turn from our sin. We admit the truth of God and what he's done in Jesus. Say, God, I don't want to live the way I'm living anymore. I want to live for you. I need Jesus. I want to be covered by him. And I surrender to him. And you receive God's grace today. So we'll have a baptism in a few weeks. What better declaration to the church family to say, I've made, you know, God's done a work in my life. He's given me a new heart. I turn it over to him that I'm baptized in his death and raised to life in him. Say, please think very carefully about this most crucial thing in all the universe. Church family, what are we going to do? Have a look at 34 and verse 8. I think we do a lot what Moses did after this revelation. God's justice, God's love. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. That is the posture of the church. There's a great God. We have the privilege of being led by him, that we worship him in spirit and in truth, and pray that as we live out our faith that we live out his love and his kindness and his mercy and his forgiveness. Then in a world that is lost and increasingly dark, we say, you know what? That God is true and he's acted in Jesus and I need more of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sermon on your name. That we marvel, Lord, that after such an act of betrayal that you would even continue the relationship. But Lord, you relent, you give your people rest, you reestablish the covenant, and you set your people on their way. Lord, I pray on the one hand that we would never be those who are not convicted of our sin, that the Christian life really begins with a conviction of sin, that I'm not a great person doing all that I should be doing, and I never do anything wrong, and I've got it all together. But rather, it starts from a place of saying, I need help from the outside. I need that cosmic voice from the outside that extends grace down and affirms the relationship with you. So, Lord, we praise you, yes, for your justice and for your love, and also as we look upon this world and we're grieved by it to know, say, none of this is lost on you. And so as we go forward as a church family, may we worship you as Moses did, 
And we thank you that you are known far more for your kindness and your love and your mercy and your forgiveness than you are your just judgment, Lord, that you've spared us. You don't hold our sins against us as we deserve. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.